0: All these things uh, from inflation to recession to quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, disinflation, currency risk, bond risk, risk, asset market risk, equity risk. It all flows down from debt and debt all flows down from our policymakers, not just at the Fed, but globally, but in particular at the ECB, the Fed, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan. It is phenomenally risky, and it's based on a monetary theory, which I think has bought us some prosperity and some euphoria, but we'll end with a hell of a hangover.
1: Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. Continuing the plan of surfacing several of our best and still most timely interviews while I'm away this week, today we turn to our interview with Matthew Pippenberg, Commercial Director at Matterhorn Asset Management, AG Gold Switzerland. At the highest level, the global economy's biggest challenge is dealing with the massive and exponentially increasing pile of debt that is built up in the era of fiat currencies, deficit spending, and promised entitlements. With no clear solution in sight and a track record of poor decision-making by those in charge of the system, how does this end other than badly? This is one of the most important interviews I've had the privilege to record for On. Let's hear why. That's great to be here, Adam, looking forward to it. Yeah, this is gonna be fun. And, and Matt, you have been a highly requested uh, guest on this channel, and so it's wonderful that you were able to, to finally great. join us here. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, look, I've, I've got a lot of questions here for you, um, a lot of them taken from your your recent piece that you released a few days ago, um, which is pretty excellent. Um, before I jump into those specific questions, though, let me just start with a question I like to ask all the guests here at the beginning of the, the interview. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? <laughs> uh,
0: baffled, cynical, um, concerned. I think the, the, the four-letter word that describes everything and if everything trickles down to is debt, how it will be uh, sustained or not sustained, the mechanizations used to use lofty words to hide really, really bad math, and I think the lack of transparency and honesty about the the ramifications of postponing a debt crisis with more debt, which is just monetized with literally money printed out out of thin air that's not linked to an asset, a chaperone, or a service. And so all these things uh, from inflation to recession to quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, disinflation, currency risk, bond risk, risk asset market risk, equity risk, it all flows down from debt. And debt all flows down from our policymakers, not just at the Fed, but globally, but in particular at the ECB, the Fed, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan. It is phenomenally risky, and it's based on a monetary theory, which I think has bought us some prosperity and some euphoria, but will end with a hell of a hangover.
1: All right. Um, you, you echo uh, Lacey Hunt, former uh, senior economist of the Federal Reserve who we've had on this channel often in fact we just had him keynote our our online conference uh, about a week and a half ago um, and and you know Lacey has basically said, look, you know yes, we're all distracted by this inflation problem we have right now and we need to get that under control. But we had what seemed like an almost unsolvable debt problem before it arrived and now that's even worse <laughs> and as soon as we get inflation under control, we're going to have to you know get real about what's going on with, with debt again. Um, as I hear you talk, I'm, I'm reminded of the title of a, um, a Kevin Costner movie. Uh, we, we found out, Matt, that you and I went to college around the same time. In fact, we went to the same college. Yeah. And around that time, Kevin Costner was in a movie called No Way Out. Uh, and I'm curious uh, if, if you had to sort of put a movie title on the debt situation, is there a more opti- op- optimistic one than No Way Out, or is this basically a, a, <laughs> a hole that we're not going to get out of, um, at least not without you know some sort of massive reset?
0: What was that other movie Hangover, you know, is another series with you know with. you know, Yeah, there's no way out other than a massive hangover that we've postponed I've used that analogy there's many different analogies can kicking hangover martinis keg parties but we've been enjoying years of a, of a fantastic frat party provided by instant liquidity when needed, whenever there was a hiccup. And we've avoided any hangover by constantly pr- providing Bloody Marys just as that hangover is starting to come. And I think a great movie title would be Hangover because we're gonna suffer a hell of a hangover. We've just been able to postpone it with optics and, and you know fiat money on demand and systemic liquidity, or excuse me, synthetic liquidity. And it's absolute fantasy. And it buys votes, it buys time, it even buys a Nobel Prize for Bernanke. It's absolute fiction to me. It's completely disingenuous and unsustainable. And again, it's not even tinfoil hat or sensational. We can get into the math of this, You can, we'll talk about it, but the bond market is far more honest than a central banker or a politician, mm-hmm. left, right, or center, or a governor of California, or a mayor of Philadelphia or Chicago. The bond market is telling us what we wanna hear. Unfortunately, the bond market is very boring. You know, looking at the implied volatility on the two-year futures, or the yield on the two-year, or the four-week treasury, or the ten-year long duration, no one wants to see this. I understand it's complicated, it's boring. It's actually fascinating when you look under it without too com- too much complexity. I mean, a lot of people would rather watch Gwyneth Paltrow's trial about an ambulance chaser in Deer Valley because they don't, Deer Valley because they don't want to see this or they don't want to understand it. I understand how that's so boring. But it has massive ramifications for the quality of our life and not just for political debate or pundit debate on different macro themes. It will and does hit the road. Eventually, affects our lives. It affects our ability to take care of our families, to worry about our job security, to worry about our mortgages or our tuition. So these things seem esoteric and boring, and they need to be made less boring and more transparent and not weaponized or partisan or political. It just needs to be simple math. And when we get into that, which I hope we will, I hope... You know, most of your viewers, obviously all your viewers are very informed, but it becomes mathematical rather than just pundit based or debatable. It's simply it's simply going to end badly. So, yeah, there's a hangover coming and there is no way out. You know, reset, you know, great reset, QE pivot, whatever you want to call it. It's going to need mouse click money to sustain our debt markets and to sustain our completely Fed driven uh equity and credit markets now. There's no natural price discovery. There's no natural supply and demand. The the markets have been hijacked by a central bank years ago, and that's just what it is. The Fed actively manages our economy like a portfolio, but they're a bad portfolio manager. And they bought bought time through leverage. They bought time through lofty words and Fancy diplomas and high position, but you know, if history isn't canceled in 20 years, our kids or grandkids will read about the most epic failure monetary policy since 1971, really, and certainly since 1913 when the Fed was in, in unimmaculately conceived and brought into law under the pressure that Woodrow Wilson didn't even want to sign by a bunch of banking cabals. So no, the, we're about to hit you know serious karma, and you know, timing that is kind of a mugs game, but the math, the
1: bit's fairly fairly clear to me. Okay. Um and let's let's get into that math. Um, I, I love the fact that you know you're saying, look, it, it, this isn't a partisan issue, but it's certainly, you know, been made one. It's it's part of the whole political kabuki theater that goes on here. It's it's sort of the cycle that we're in, which is that the the mugs running the system break it and then they're <laughs> the same people who come in to yeah. rescue it and we're yeah. trapped in this. Uh, yeah. you know, the sort of groundhog day, God, we're just coming yeah. up with all these movie titles here. <laughs> uh, um, but, um, but that at the end of the day, it's just not mathematically sustainable, and we need to really understand right. that. Um, I, yeah. there's also an element in here that maybe at the end we can reflect on, which is I, I've opined at times that, um, you know. <laughs> sort of a this is sort of a comment on on the fact that we don't really teach financial literacy very well uh in this country um but that people have have we've sort of abdicated our agency as a society in in the financial system and in matters economic we just tell ourselves ooh math is hard so we're just going to let these really smart people run the show right. and right. as you've said they've kind of proven again and again that there're no you know mental giants here in fact they've got a pretty pretty poor track record um right. but you know, we just say, "Look, it's it's above our pay grade as regular people." And the answer is, it's really, it's really not all that tough. You know, right. the, the the math isn't all that super complex. Um, and we as a as a society just need to sort of get more involved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. You're nodding as I'm saying this here. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, look, I want to I want to I want to share some of your words back with you here um, to to give you a jumping off point. Again, they're from your excellent recent piece called um, titled Je Cues." Uh, to Bond Killers and Other Villains Destroying Our World. Okay, so you're not, you're not pulling too many punches with a title yeah. like that. Um, here's what you say. As I look back on just the latest and entirely predictable hours, days, and weeks of waste occurring in the global debt markets in general, and the U.S. Treasury markets and banking systems in particular, the billions and trillions sloshing and churning through emergency swap lines, discount windows, and broken financial systems almost defies belief the last two years, we've consistently shattered from the rooftops that, quote, the bond market was the thing, and that when it eventually broke, markets and innocent financial lives would tilt towards implosion, immediately followed by more centralized controls from the very policymakers who caused the crisis. And then you begin to you, you go through and say, look, you know, it's, it's, I'm not talking about a coming bond crisis; it's already underway. You cite the the uh, 2019 uh, repo market uh, blowout there. Uh, the, the sovereign bond fall during the uh, onset of the pandemic in 2020 um the the like overnight you know collapse almost of the UK gilts market uh, in 2022 which almost brought down their entire pension system uh and then here in 2023 we're seeing the weaker banks so far mm-hmm. at least the weaker ones um really begin to buckle under the fed's recent you know policy reversal here um so you know t- let's talk about this the bond market really you know credit is the lifeblood of the global economy that's mm-hmm. kind of the the foundation that everything runs off of. And you're basically saying it's mm-hmm. in the process of a breakdown at this trajectory.
0: Yeah, it's an overused phrase, but you know, the Fed can tighten into the greatest debt bubble for as long as they want until something breaks. I'd argue so many things have broken. As you mentioned, there's been three moments of complete dysfunction in the credit markets, which if people understood credit markets, should have been headline coffee talk news every day. And that repo market was the first, the 2020 sovereign crisis was the second. Uh, the guilt implosion was the third, that was last year. And then early this year, we've already come into the first quarter and now we're seeing this Silicon Valley bank narrative, the Silvergate you know, signature, First Republic, et cetera. They're all related. They're all things that have broken as we're raising rates into a debt bubble. When you raise the cost of debt, when debt is the rotten wind, wind beneath the wings of this so-called 2 recovery, when you hit record high debt levels to sustain record high stock, bond, and real estate bubbles, and then you when you, when you hit that by keeping rates repressed for years and printing money uh, to the tune of billions a month, when you reverse that policy, things start to break. And of course, something broke. We can talk about silver, you know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. To me, it's just a metaphor. It has nothing to do really with a, a 2008 parallel. It, it rhymes, but it's very different. But my point is, uh, the, the Fed has put itself in a corner. They can either raise rates and destroy markets, banks, credit markets, equity markets. Equity markets follow the debt markets because equity markets depend on rolling over cheap debt and buying their own stocks at in, in, in low rates. Those games are over in a rising rate environment. Powell has ended that that charade. But at the same time as he's trying to fight inflation, he's going to get a pyrrhic victory looking over the rubble of credit markets, equity markets, and economies. And of course, smaller regional banks. But it really does have a ripple effect into the, into the main street economy, too, not just depositors at small banks. And so, you know, something has broken. I think it's it's significant. It's more of a narrative about how. Year after year, headline after headline, another thing breaks because our bond markets are so vulnerable. And the Fed and the politicos, left or right, some more vociferous than others, will try to deny this with lofty words, kind of like be calm, carry on during the blitz in London or World War II. Lots of lofty language to hide really, really dangerous math. Again, $31 trillion in public debt, $90 plus trillion in combined household, public and corporate debt. That's become an aberration. And I said in that article, it's like Hannah Wren's book, The Banality of Evil, talking about the Holocaust. When you're talking about millions of lives, it almost becomes a banalized abstract and even for the people at the time they kind of turn their head or 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 even in history it's hard to kind of conceive of those kind of numbers is the joke if if i owe you a million dollars it's my problem if i owe you a billion it's nobody's problem it's your problem no one's going to pay it these numbers become abstract when you're talking about 31 trillion and by the end of this year probably 34 trillion in public debt which we don't have the gdp or the tax receipts to pay for and we'll, of course, we'll have to monetize that debt by printing money in some form, in some way, mechanized, uh, artificial. It's an abstraction. It's a banality of mathematical and debt evil. It's a, it's a banality of currency evil. It's a, it's a banality of trillions and billions that mean nothing to anyone anymore. They just kind of assume we have a debt ceiling, we have a bond crisis, we have an IOU. Uh, We'll we'll pay for that with a mouse click at the Eccles building. That works only for so long until you see cracks in the ice. We've seen those prior cracks, the repo market, the gilt markets, now the regional banks. I think what we're seeing now is how many more cracks until the ice breaks beneath our feet and we have a bigger problem. Which can only be solved by either some artificial reset of global Chapter 11, or more likely, as Yellen's been hinting all of last year, despite Powell's puff chest puffing, uh, a pause in the in the aggressive rate hikes and a return to the only solution we have, because Ponzi schemes can't taper. And that may sound like a like a massive simplification, but what we have as monetary policy, and this is something David Stockman said years ago, is effectively a Ponzi scheme. That's not an exaggeration. You can talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, or you can talk about Bernie Madoff, or you can talk about Bernanke, Powell, Yellen, and Greenspan. Because what they do is they, they issue IOUs for which they don't have the money, we don't have the GDP, the tax receipts, the productivity, the income to pay for those IOUs. And when when the when the proverbial X hits the fan, their last resort is always going to the Fed, mouse clicking a few extra zeros when needed to pay for those debts. Believe me, if Sandbankman and Fried or Bernie Madoff or any sticky fingered hedge fund manager who would otherwise be corruptly put in prison had a money printer in their basement which <laughs> which they could legally use, they would that would they would use it. Who wouldn't? It's addictive. And, you know, again, remember, Bernanke promised us back in 2010, QE1 was going to be temporary with no consequences. You know, this is just a temporary solution for bank raises, just like Powell told us last year that, you know, inflation was going to be temporary. They have to use words to to deny the math. And again, this goes to the theme of who do you listen to? Do you listen to what Powell says or do you listen to what the bond market says? When Powell raises rates, when rates go up, bond prices go down and yields go up. And that's what happened in Silicon Valley Bank, we won't get into the weeds of it, but basically their long duration treasuries lost value. Across the entire banking system, anyone holding long duration treasuries lost $2 trillion in market value on the collateral, those treasuries, which are considered risk-free return. But when measured against inflation, it's return-free risk. And so these policies, these measures by Powell have ramifications, they, 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 they throttle the bond market, they throttle the banking market. But let's keep in mind also last year, 2022, all this talk about what a brave Volcker reborn superstar Powell is gonna be. Remember Volcker raised rates in the 80s or late 70s when, when our national debt was less than a trillion, it was 800 billion, 900 yep. billion at the hot. We're at 31 trillion. So we can't afford to raise the cost of that debt when our debt is infinitely higher than it was in the Volcker era. So for Powell to pretend to be Volcker is is frankly
1: disingenuous. But, right, and, and sorry so to interrupt, but it's, it's also more than four times what it was, just going into the global financial crisis. Just going into, exactly. So we're talking about
0: math that doesn't make sense. If you just look at the simple balance sheets and what did Powell achieve? He, he reduced the balance sheet by 300 billion after all that talk last year, all this QT that so shocked the markets, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the credit markets got shellacked last year. S&P down 15, the tech, NASDAQ down 30%, credit markets down we had the worst nominal returns in stocks and bonds in 2020 nominal together. These are correlated assets. They're supposed to be hedged. They're correlated now. Stocks and bonds, worst nominal return since 1871, just past our civil war. So that proved that that little rate, that little reduction in the balance sheet, which was 300 billion, which by the way, just in the last few weeks, we've already lost that 300 billion in loans to these regional banks and FDIC extensions. So all the work that we got for QT last year, well, we saw the reaction in the bond and stock market, a, a 2% reduction in the Fed balance sheet caused massive ripple effects in our credit and equity markets. And frankly, all the, the quote unquote money that we tightened is already back in the system. So there is a major thirst for liquidity, a major thirst for collateral in the banks, a major need to support the treasury market. Naturally, it can't be done naturally. Uh, there is no natural demand for Uncle Sam's uh, unloved IOUs. And so, regardless of what Powell does this quarter or last quarter, regardless of what the FOMC meetings or the Bookings Institute, or even what they say in Jackson Hole, the net result is if no one else is buying our debt, who's going to buy it? It's simple, but it's going to have to be uh, a central bank near you. And again, if we don't, uh, the consequences are going to be dramatic uh, on our, in our economy. They're already dramatic in our banking system. We can go into that. But if we do pivot and, and, and instantly liquidify the treasury markets and therefore the banking markets, the bond markets, the repo markets, the, the Euro dollar markets, all these different exchanges, even the derivative markets for which treasuries are collateral, all these things rely on liquid treasuries. If we if we liquidify them through mouse click money, we have the inevitable inflation or possibly hyperinflation. People talk about inflation. You know, there are real issues about the war, about COVID, about supply chain links, but let's just keep it simple, stupid. We raised the M2 money supply by 14 trillion over the last decade plus. That's why we have inflation. It's very simple. If I hand you a glass of good Bordeaux wine and we put a swimming pool of money into that glass of wine, you know. The, the, the wine loses its flavor, just like our currency has lost its punch. It may be relatively stronger than all the other patients in the ICU. It's still a sick patient. It's still a, the inherent purchasing power of that currency, like every other currency, has lost so much value when measured against real assets that it's it's openly obvious. And again, these things are not transparently discussed, Adam. These are, these are boring things about currency risk, about yields on bonds, about supporting those bonds through printed money or mouse click money how much is 31 trillion versus 35 trillion or 900 you know, a nine hundred, or $9 trillion Fed balance sheet versus a $4 trillion balance sheet. They're just abstractions. And if you saw Yellen recently in front of the Senate, it was embarrassing. I was almost embarrassed for Yellen how little she understood about the extension of the deficit, the rising of the deficit this year. She didn't even have the numbers in front of her and she's the treasury secretary and a former Fed chair. So again, when you're when push comes to shove, when you're asked to look at hard numbers, even our experts don't even fully grasp them. And certainly the the average person for, through no fault of their own has, uh, I think, uh, less and less understanding, I think more and more so now, hopefully, but you know, for years, it was just trust the experts. I think that trust, like, like trust in just about everything, whether it's the media, politics, social identity politics, partisan politics, left versus right media, trust in so many things is palpably changing right now in the US and certainly here in Europe. Uh, it's a major loss of trust. And that also has invisible, hard to quantify ramifications to.
1: Right. Uh, And I was thinking maybe we get to this in a bit, but let's touch on it briefly right now. In many ways, you may be getting a preview of what's still yet to come to American shores, right? Because there's a there's a lot of protests and just general civil unrest breaking out, Mm -hmm. not just in France, but kind of in all places around Europe, right?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, obviously, I mean, I've lived in France for 20 years. There's never a, a season in France. So there's not a strike somewhere, whether it's on the trains or on the highways or in the cities. But, you know, right now there's major social unrest uh, in, in Paris in particular about extending the, 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 the legal re- re- age for retirement from 60 to 62 to 64. There's concerns about pension risk. There's concerns about currency risk. It's a very political unrest, but it, it all boils down to, to money. Um, and pension risk, which you know, smarter folks than me, including Michael Burry or Raul Powell or David Stockman, I've written about in a book about pension fund risk. But that's real in Europe just as much as it is in the U.S. And you know, this goes to a theme that was in the article you mentioned. Which you're right, most of the time I talk about boring things like bond spreads, or volatility in the bond market, or three sigma moves that we saw in US Treasury, and two-year Treasuries. A three sigma move, according to MIT scholars, should happen once every 50 million years. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's crazy, you know, and that, that just came out by a Bloomberg, uh, Dan Ingalls. And then the 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 spikes in the volatility in the, two-year, in the two-year Treasury, we haven't seen that since, it was worse than 2008, it was worse than 9-11, it was worse than 1987. The volatility, and I used to be a bond trader, and I've talked to bond traders this week. You couldn't get a bid or an ask because the prices were moving so quickly, 60, 50, 70 bips. When you're talking about moving millions and there's 70-bit moves, that makes the market too volatile to trade. You're looking at moments of real illiquidity, which, again, we haven't seen since 2008, 9-11, 1987, and yet – not really discussing in the headlines, not making front page news. I joke it's Gwyneth Paltrow ski accident, not bond mm-hmm. market two-year yields. Understandably, Gwyneth Paltrow ski accidents a lot more interesting than two-year yield volatility. But when you actually see what that volatility means and what it's pointing toward, again, the bond market and the bond traders and even if you look at something as boring as you know Euro dollar futures, they're pricing in a major pivot at the end of this year. They're seeing interest rates coming down because there's gonna be an oh shit moment, pardon my French, there's gonna be an uh oh moment. We can use that as a better word, an uh-oh moment in the bond market. And so the the market jocks, the bond jocks are already, they're already pricing this in. Powell won't talk about it, but they know, what we all know, is it's not sustainable. There's going to need to be magical money to support Uncle Sam's IOUs, and therefore you're seeing this massive spike in the contract price of euro-dollar futures. Again, very boring stuff, but what it really just says is there's no confidence in our bond market, there's no confidence in our Fed policy, there's no confidence in our currency, ultimately. And so you Know these things have to be known so people can prepare and I think you know and be informed. I don't have an easy answer, Paul doesn't have an easy answer. We can talk well, about, I don't, I don't
1: think there are, that's what we're going to get into here. But that's sort of why I started with No Way Out. Like, there, yeah. there, there, <laughs> is, there is no painless, graceful way to to change your behavior and go to something better. We're going to have yeah. to have this hangover that you're talking about, yeah. Right? Unfortunately, okay. yeah. So, um, <clears throat> Matt, you, 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 this is great, you're, you're identifying a ton of. I, I want to try to take this conversation down. Um, but uh, so you, to me you nailed it with this quote, which is that Ponzi schemes can't taper, mm-hmm. right? So you were just talking about confidence, right? like every Ponzi scheme is a confidence game, right It runs on yeah. confidence when confidence runs out, that's when it implodes, right? right? So you know the challenge the Fed is getting into is it it, it, it the cost of continuing the Ponzi is now threatening to be, as big as the, the, the pause, uh, the, the cost of, of stopping the Ponzi, mm-hmm. right? He's kind of trap mm-hmm. between right. the inflation dragon and, and, and the, right. Recession. uh, session, the, the, yeah. the system, the, the just the sy- systemic instability dragon. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but I, 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 I asked you about, you know, the, the, um, I don't know what you want to call them riots, uh, demonstrations, mm-hmm. protests, whatever, social unrest. Right now. Yeah. um, mm-hmm. because that is So, you know, people, I say this a lot on this channel, people, people, there's two ways to change. You can do it um, proactively, right? You can, you can project out mentally where things are going and say, oh, if I continue this behavior, it's going to eventually have a bad outcome. Let me start today before things get really bad, right? right? Being human beings, we hardly ever do that right? We just continue the status quo until the pain of continuing it outweighs the pain of changing, right? So that's the guy whose doctors told him, you got to get in better shape, buddy. The guy says, yeah, (laughs) I'll do that someday. And he doesn't until he has the first heart attack, right? And then he's like, oh, okay, right. So, you know, all these these manifestations of the, you know, civil anger and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. those are the signs of The system saying the status quo is getting too painful to continue. You're right. I'm sure most of those protesters don't really understand central bank policy. They don't understand the euro dollar futures market or whatever. But what they know is, wait a minute, just prosperity wise, uh, you know, I'm being diminished here to a point now where it really hurts. And I need to get out there and, and say that this is no longer working for me. Right. 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 So I I think we're going to see more of those symptoms break out around the world as people just on that, like, oh, well, I want to go buy some eggs. But Jesus Christ, they're just I I can't afford them anymore. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You don't need to be an economist or a pundit or a former hedge fund guy or an executive in Switzerland in, in, in real assets to to know that when when you're purchasing power is disintegrating when inflation is hitting you especially at the middle class level something's wrong something feels off and then frustration stress anxiety employment concerns all of those things snowball and i think this is something i've said in many times that you know again it's 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 not an opinion it's historically confirmed that every debt crisis throughout history every debt crisis ends in well it ends in a market crisis which ends in a currency crisis which then leads to social unrest. And at the end, ultimately it leads to extreme control from the political left or the right, extreme centralization. When we could talk about that in banking sector, in our social lives, in our private lives, central bank digital currency, they're all symptoms. We're seeing a tilt towards more and more uh, centralization and control and social unrest is always a symptom and I used to think in college that economics was not nearly as interesting as history or philosophy or psychology and understanding the movements of history. It's great or bad men and women who affect history. It's great or bad philosophical movements. But I realized, with, at least from experience, that something as banal and boring as economics and inflation and and, and, and mathematical events really move history. If you look they, at inflation- They drive everything. They're what all those people react to. Right, exactly, and so they're all connected. They're all very important. They're all ultimately human, all too human because it affects our personal safety, our sense of security, our sense of trust. You know, Chairman Mao came in after inflation. Napoleon came in after the National Assembly, blew out the, the French currency in 1789. Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco came in after inflation in the 30s in Europe. Almost all of Latin America's regime changes and horrific stories from Argentina to Peru to Venezuela always happen in periods of inflation. So inflation does matter. Monetary policy does matter. Reckless, drunk driving of our currency and financial system and our banking system through centralized controls, which Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson and you know Ludwig von Mises warned of always kills the currency, which always le- creates to inflation. I even quoted Hemingway. You can go from Thomas Jefferson to Ernest Hemingway. Every time you destroy the currency system, you buy short-term perspe- prosperity and ultimate ruin. And part of that ruin, he, he said three things. This is Hemingway, not a Fed chair, not a politician, fairly bright guy, fairly brave guy, fairly troubled guy, who spent a couple of times in two world wars. He said, it, you, you have... You have you have inflation, you have currency debasement, and you have war. We're seeing that play out in real time right now. And, uh, you know, it's whether you're Hemingway or Powell, you have to understand the power of math. And I think, again, many people are starting to figure that out. They don't need to understand euro dollar futures. They just know something feels wrong. Our debt's wrong. There's too much control. There's too many excuses. They don't know who to believe anymore because the media like our currency and our Fed and our policies are so weaponized now that people have a hard time, even trusting me, you must be selling your book, it must be gold, a gold bug. Again, I understand that. There, that, that debate, that open discourse, which I'd love to see more of. Uh, you remember the days of Gore Vidal and William Buckley, You know, two very different views, but brilliant, articulate, impassioned, uh, honest men trying to debate facts. What we have now are, are, are a lot of social justice warriors or a lot of angry, emotional people debating emotions. They're not looking at the facts. We've seen
1: a death right. of facts in, in TikTok-sized sound bites too. You yeah, just get in small substance. attention
0: spans, yeah. and so I think. The more we can get facts, unadulterated, nonpartisan, or at least intelligently debated, including views I might have. I love a debate where I would love to see someone give me better news than I'm providing. And rather than try to beat that person in a debate, I lean into the table and I, listen, I'm trying to look for good news or rays of hope. I just don't see it right now. So the best we can do is prepare financially, psychologically, cynically, for the ramifications of reckless driving, really since uh, since Greenspan came into office, I could see him the patient zero of this, but it really is since the Fed was created and since central banks you know, took over uh, our markets, as Rothschild right. said, give me a central bank and the power to control money, I control the world. Right. You control and the, money. And,
1: and the shift to purely fiat currency as well in that yeah. journey, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. All right, um, well look, um, so it sounds like to to steal Hemingway's words there that that yeah. you're you, what you're worried about in terms of sort of where this ends is currency debasement, inflation, and war. Um, and, and I, I know you you're looking for better news than that and, and I'd sure yeah. love to hear it too. Um, yeah. But I think what you're saying is like it's just prudent for those of us who have studied history or are studying the markets can can project things out mathematically. Mm-hmm. That those things are uncomfortably high from a probability standpoint. And so we should be taking steps today yep. to at least say, okay, if they happen, what can I do now to be less vulnerable to them? Um, and we can talk in a bit about sort of, you know, you're, you're a capital manager. So we can talk about how you are trying to manage capital in this type of world. But mm-hmm. but before that, so to your point about the Ponzi schemes can't taper, right? Um mm-hmm. From everything you've said, uh, I, it doesn't sound to me like you see a way that the Fed can can find a way to magically avoid all of this, right? At, at some point, it's faced with the choice of, you know, I'm going to die by fire or die by ice here, right? Um, yeah,
0: Adam. Yeah, Adam. You, you know, you you said what's my first thought for the world economy, and my my answer was debt, right? And so the Fed, like the ECB or the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan or Powell, for example because of all this debt surrounding him, that he is, that his institution has helped build because you can't solve a debt crisis with more debt. 2008 right. debt crisis solution, more debt paid for with printed money. He's like a, a, a kind of a blind man walking through a powder keg with a candle in his hand, hoping not to hit anything and blow it up and trying to walk a very fine line with QE, QT, raising rates to have something to lower, optically talk about controlling inflation, maybe we'll have a higher target inflation, maybe we'll just misreport inflation, all kinds of tricks and gains. We all know on Wall Street that the CPI scale, I always joke is as bogus as a 42nd Street Rolex. We all know that it's bogus, it's much higher. If we use the scale that Volker used, we're at much higher inflation than reported. They can play with maybe a higher target inflation rate, They can play with even unemployment statistics. Nick Eberstadt has done a great job of showing the fiction behind our employment data and the fiction behind our CPI data. And these again, this is not sensational. It's not tinfoil headed. I've got no horse in that game. It's just trying to be as candid as I can. Again, happy to be challenged. We all are thirsty for blunt, open, honest math right now. And so, you know, what can we do? And, and what will Powell do? He has very little options. He is walking through a powder keg of debt with a candle and he doesn't have good options.
1: And, right. and his corridor is gonna... narrowing and narrowing and the piles of open gunpowder <laughs> are higher and higher. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that, that's where I wanted to go here just to sort of ask you to, to pontificate here and nobody knows, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. uh, you're more than welcome anytime you want to come back on and, and give us an update <laughs> as as events develop from here, uh, Matt, yeah. giving you that open invite. But but what do you think is the end game here? Right, mm-hmm. it's at some point the central banks are not going to be able to, you know, um, lie, cheat, or steal. You know, mm-hmm. a, a way to kick the can further down the road. Um, and and mm-hmm. so, maybe two unfair questions to ask you to pontificate on. One is, wh- how does this break? Do you think? Do they think they, mm-hmm. they eventually choose the the, the hyperinflation or, or the the route that leads to high inflation and currency destruction because it's yeah. the it's always the politically palatable one in the moment uh, itself, yeah. or Do we have a Volcker moment or something like that where we just try to break, you know, uh, break the system? And and yeah, it's going to get bad, but then we can build atop the rubble when the dust settles and do something more sane going forward. And and sorry to make this such a long question, but do you have any sort of gut feel on the timeline of this, right? In other words, like, is this going to be the rest of our lifetimes that we're going to be just sort of sloshing through all this? And guys like you and I who are in our 50s are are probably not going to see the new dawn, or is this something that might happen a lot faster?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in those questions, and I'll try and really be specific in the answer. In terms of what to expect, again, you drink 20 martinis, you will have a hangover. You swim way out past the big surf without a surfboard or a leash, you're probably going to drown. If you... Uh, you know, if you play with, uh, with too many weapons, with no training, you're gonna get injured. And at this point, there is no solution to the debt unless we pivot at some point. And it's not a question of Q2, Q3, or Q4. The Fed will pivot when we have another 08 or another March of 2020. Remember, 2020, we printed more money in a period of 12 months than we did in the prior eight years. That was not a market recovery. That was a counterfeit solution to a, a real problem which was openly inflationary and hidden behind a lot of bad math. But Powell, I think, you know, thinks he can be Volcker, but he also isn't stupid. He knows he's really raising rates right now, so he has something to lower when the recession that they denied, that they redefined, becomes too hard to deny, inevitable. I think we're either in a recession now or clearly on the border of one. But that even won't be enough for him to pause. What will happen, I think, is we'll see it where the pain is always most visible and making the most headlines, when you see it, like an 08 moment or a 36% drop in in March of 2020, which would have been 50, 60, 70% drop had they not printed trillions in a matter of weeks and months. That was appalling. And behind the scenes of the COVID crisis and the PPL checks and the stimmy checks and all that, what we really saw was a backdoor, another 2008 bailout of the bond market. That Mm -hmm. again, not making the headlines. It was I won't get into conspiracy theory where they engineered COVID or whether they exploited a crisis to benefit, but it really was just another bailout because no one wants to see another too big to fail bank or corrupt bond market or banking practices or Wall Street get bailed out again. Nothing better than to try and sneak that bail in and that kind of trillions in liquidity than a humanitarian crisis like COVID, which again, smarter people than me, pro or con can debate about the sincerity or insincerity of the COVID narrative, but it was a backdoor bailout. So to your question, I think what the, the Fed will do right now, Powell, I think, needs negative real rates and inflation to inflate away debt. He'll optically pretend to fight inflation, but you can't fight six or nine or 10% inflation with five or 6% interest rates. What he's really doing is raising rates so he has something to lower when there is a recession or a market crash. He tried that in 2018. We have short memories. Throughout 2018, they tried to tighten and raise rates throughout 2018. I was in the south of France at Cannes on Christmas Eve. It was a disaster markets tank by 2019 we went into a pause and a pivot markets and the bond markets and the stock markets can't handle rising rates eventually something breaks so to your point what will happen something will break more than Silicon Valley Bank something will break bigger than First Republic or Silvergate which are appalling for other reasons. We're talking about a major disinflationary move in the, in, the risk, in the risk asset markets. When that happens, Powell will reach into the only tools he has, which is more money printing and more rate reduction. And that will be inherently inflationary. The solution, it's a doom loop. It's a doom loop. The solution is always going to be synthetic money on demand, which is inherently inflationary. So he's trying to fight inflation. Can't do it. Can't do it. If you really wanted to do it, it'd be like any family. I say this all the time. You and your wife sit down. Honey, we can't put our kids in choke. It's too expensive, can't buy the Porsche, too expensive. We have to tighten our belts. We can't live on a Visa, MasterCard and an Amex and your mother's help. We have to tighten our belts. We have to face austerity. We have to focus on productivity. We have to get better jobs, better income. That's what every American has to do in real time because we don't have money printers in our basement. But our government won't do this. I had a long conversation with Grant Williams about this, the lack of responsibility and accountability. The Fed will always blame you know, war, viruses, extraneous events when the, when the mirror is right in front of them. It's very simple. Who's to blame for this? There's no accountability. I find that uh, criminal almost, if not super, super uh, unethical. But again, they're politicians. They need spin. They won't take accountability. When was the last time we, any of us saw a central banker say, maybe that extra $8 trillion on the Fed balance sheet was a bad idea? Maybe modern monetary theory, which was a fringe concept when you and I were in college or grad school, is now mainstream. It's an absolute fairy tale. Anyone knows this. A 10 year old would know if you explained it that you can solve a problem by creating money out of nowhere and paying for it with no actual value. So, you know, at some point the narrative breaks, but, you know, they're in a doom loop. They'll print. The other option, of course, Adam, is they could do a reset, a global chapter 11. I'm not talking about a Klaus Schwab type of reset, but you'll, if you, you may or may not have noticed, I wrote about this in 2020. It was so obvious, like a cavity to a dentist. They were exploiting the COVID crisis. The IMF did it first, then the Bank of International Settlements, then the Fed. But they were already telegraphing, almost like a PSYOP, like a CIA program. They were already telegraphing in 220, in the height of the COVID crisis, that COVID was like World War II. This is a debt crisis we haven't seen since World War II. And we need to come together and think about maybe a centralized digital currency or some way to monetize this debt. It's not our fault. God knows it's not our, our fault, not right. the big banks. And, and they were comparing COVID, which wasn't plenty of pleasant for any of us for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different cynical reasons. But to compare COVID to World War II is an insult, certainly to a European American or anyone who lives overseas, where 80 million people died in cities like Rotterdam, London, uh, Frankfurt, Dresden, obliterated all of the Ukraine, Russia, the Crimea, death like you can't imagine. You cannot compare World War II economically or human terms, to COVID, no matter what you think of COVID. For the IMF to do that, to, to kind of plant that comparison, to create that fear, to, to justify, again, no accountability for central bank policy, blaming it on some virus, or now, of course, Putin, very debatable issue, Putin, Zelensky, whatever, we won't get into the weeds of that, but there's always someone else to blame. When it's so simple, it's right in front of you. It's money printing gone wild, which is what David Stockman warned about long before COVID, long before Putin, long before supply chain disruptions. It's very simple. You're adding buckets of water to a glass of wine. You're killing the currency. You're creating inflation and you're hurting people and you're creating social unrest and distrust. And so when there's distrust, they have to create some kind of new fear narrative. So there's no one blames them because the biggest fear of any corrupt leadership, left, right, or center is people being informed and aware right. of how his much? Is accountability? Is accountability? Yeah, imagine yeah. that.
1: And, and what's what's um, <clears throat> what what sort of creates makes this sort of a vicious cycle, right? Is you know they, they create these problems as you're saying, and they do everything to deflect you know their own responsibility and role in it. But but when the the symptoms of the problem really emerge at, at full and strength, the populace says well, then give me more stimulus right we're, we're still at the point where we're asking for we're asking for more alcohol right, right. from the overgenerous sure. bartender right yeah. so yes they need to embrace austerity we're be increasingly having to just be forced to embrace it because the cost of living and our real wages are still going down mm-hmm. but what we're asking for right is mm-hmm. more profligacy and mm-hmm. um i i think that there's uh, i i put the blame with the central planners i understand why the. <laughs> trying to put food on the table is asking for help here yeah but until we have sort of a realization in the shift that you know what like some form of austerity living within our means is really what we're going to need to have a long-term sustainable uh you know better tomorrow out of all this um mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. in, in, until we stop asking for these guys to do what we're doing what they're doing we're probably just going to get more of the problem I guess is what i'm saying
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. It's easy to point the finger at at people like Powell or Bernanke or Yellen or Greenspan. And it's true, they deserve it. But we all also ourselves got addicted to easy money. I saw in the 90s in the Nasdaq bubble and the post-08 bubble. I saw it leading up to the subprime crisis. You know, who doesn't like a handout? Who doesn't like low rates? What markets don't? Low rates give us... Rising markets and rising rates give us low markets. You can go long or short based on a simple trend indicator or the yield on the 10-year. But you're right, we all love a tailwind. And when the Fed is giving you one, giving you instant liquidity, giving the economy the liquidity it needs to sustain itself, you know, we're all suddenly experts in, in stocks and bonds or, or digital currencies or whatever sexy trend is of the of the month or the week. And yet we get addicted to get into that as well. So it creates a moral hazard at every level, understandably. I think it's fine if the average retail investor wants to take advantage of a tailwind. And part of the reasons we have these conversations is to warn them though that these tailwinds have very dangerous turning points. Yeah. And if if you're no one can time a market, you can get caught in short squeezes, you can get long vol, it could be very scary, but you you got to kind of know when you're near a top and near a bottom. No one buys at the bottom and sells at the top. It's always the opposite, but we're all clearly near a top. Question is how do you prepare for that in your portfolio, or what assets are safe? And that's a whole other conversation too. But yes, the moral hazard is not just on small banks like you know, or depositors like SVB, or big banks like the central bank or the BIS. The moral hazard affects investors across the board, sophisticated, unsophisticated. We get used to this keg party. We don't want it to end, so give us more. Uh, we can make fun of Powell, but we've all profited from him as well, right? To some extent. And uh, so that's a very good point, Adam. Yeah, you I know, mean, every investor
1: just... or not every, but most investors—there are rooting for the pivot. Oh, great! Yeah. We're going to go back to the way it was, right? And then, then stocks go yeah. up every year, and I just buy the dip, right? And yeah, throw well, it's and... funny
0: that um, that was a bank term funding program that kind of came out during the Silicon Valley thing. It was nothing like TARP, but the, the, the joke was the what was the BTFP? They were calling it buy the freaking. Pivot. That's what yeah. the signal was, and that's what the eurodollar people saying it's not next week, next tomorrow. But the markets are pricing in a pivot again. Markets know more than what Powell is going to say, and I think uh, that's an important point. Great. And let,
1: let me just ask you about that. So you 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 said that look, at some point something's going to break somewhere, and that's what's going to force Powell to pivot. So mm-hmm. the market is is. Pricing in a, a pivot this year. It's pricing mm-hmm. in several rate cuts this year. Yeah. Does, yeah, does that mean that the market is expecting something systemic to break badly enough to force Powell's hand there? And if it if it is, then why are stocks still where they are right now? Why are they not mm-hmm. getting repriced downwards? Because mm-hmm. presumably some systemic break like that is not bullish. No, I mean there. But that goes to the moral hazard. Most first of all, many
0: investors are just stuck in passive. Uh, risk parity portfolios that somebody on the corner or online runs for them. It's mostly stock bond diversification. They're just riding this wave and they keep their head in the sand. And most advisors tell them, don't worry if there's a correction. They always correct. They always bounce back. So just ride it. There's a lot of things wrong with that philosophy. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, why are markets so high despite the fact that everyone's um, you know, everything looks so bad. Again, it is because there's a moral hazard that when, when things get really bad, the Fed will do what it has always done since 2008. At every dip, you could buy it. At every even major correction or, or a downturn, including March of 2020, there's nothing the Fed can't fix. So if you can bite a stick through even a 36% you know, drawdown like we saw in March 2020, the Fed will save us. So we love and hate the Fed. And again, if they save us, that just means we're gonna have hyperinflation. So the 20% you made on your S&P will be eaten alive in real terms by the inflation. It's running up, uh, running uphill in roller skates. But I think, you know, again, this goes to, you know, memories are short and fantasy is long and no one wants to think about sensational tinfoil-hatted reality or math. But remember, again, you and I were teenagers, but when the Nikkei crashed in 89 or, you know, at that time in, in Japan, everyone thought, well, how can we get hurt if we're all crossing the road at the same time? We're in this together, we're gonna be fine. Well, the Nikkei crash 1989, that was well over 30 years ago. It has not recovered its highs. Right. I'm not saying that we're gonna have a Nikkei like crash this year, although the markets are pricing in a major rate cut because of are pricing in a major market disaster. But right or wrong, remember. All bubbles pop. The last bubble to pop is always a currency bubble, without exception, period. Timing that is very hard. You got to look at, again, look at the signals from the bond market. But assuming that all bubbles pop and the currencies are the last to pop, how could you prepare yourself? But Nikkei crashed over 30 years ago. If you were 70 over 30 years ago, you never got that money back you were 25, fine, you wanna wait it out. So how you manage this risk, how you think about the future is very different depending on your personality, your age, your profile. But if we have a Nikkei-like crash, which we will unless we print more money and have hyperinflation, there's gonna be a lot of people that are gonna be very, very hurt. And that's where, again, the reality of the economy, the reality of your personal life actually becomes the real issue here, not bond spreads, indicators, euro dollar futures, yield curves. It's just you don't have any purchasing power. You don't have a portfolio that was valued the same next year as it was last year. You don't know what to do. You don't know who to trust. You don't know what signals to look at. You don't know how to prepare. So you trust you trust the drunk drivers at the wheel of the Fed, which has created a moral hazard that they can be trusted. And so far, since 2008, they've kept us above our nose, just above water, or then some, created the greatest risk acid bubble I've ever studied or seen. And I've seen the NASDAQ bubble. I got a profit off that IPO. It made me a very independent man by accident. So I'm all in favor of bubbles, but you gotta also know their dark side. And you gotta also know, you gotta think about that, again, there is no exception, all bubbles pop. The only way I think theoretically you could keep this bubble from popping is very simple. You monetize it with mouse click money, but that just creates a whole other set of problems with inflation. So technically you could have a market that never dies, deficits without tears, but you can't avoid the inflation. So pick your poison, a necessary austerity moment in the markets or the, the absolute murder of the purchasing power of your currency, be it a Euro, a dollar, a yen, a one, a franc, a peso. And uh, we joke about banana republics in South America Central America. America's balance sheet, it's a, it's a banana republic. We're just the world reserve currency. But eventually, and as we're seeing massive signals of de-dollarization and a whole other theme, even America, like Rome, like Mao, like China, like Napoleon, like the great powers of the 30s, even those empires collapse, always because of a debased currency, always. That, again, sounds sensational. Like, I get it. Sounds crazy, or at least not in our time. But it's already happening. What Hemingway warned about, currency, inflation, war, isn't down the road. It's right now. It's already happening. It's just a matter of degree of how much worse it gets. You and I have no idea whether the war in the Ukraine escalates or not. That's out of our hands. 365 planes were just sent over. When we talk about Zelensky and the Crimea, it's not Zelensky, it's NATO. He doesn't have an air force. Let's call a duck a duck. This is not Ukraine against Russia. It is a proxy war against Russia, whatever you think of it. I'm not gonna get into that debate, but let's just be honest of what it is. Let's have an open debate. Again, same thing with markets. Unlike politics though, markets are more honest. That's my point from the very beginning. The bond markets are more honest. The yields are more honest. Um, you can track those regardless of what the Fed does. You can see the direction of the market by you know how the bond markets and the asset classes react. And again, that doesn't make you perfect market timer but it opens your eyes real fast. And again, without getting into the weeds of of Silicon Valley Bank, at the end of the day, why didn't they go to a discount window? Why didn't they go to a dealer? Why didn't they take out a $90 million loan on $100 million worth of collateral? It's not about the banking risk. It's about the fact that no other banks wanted to help Silicon Valley Bank and no discount windows would rent or loan against them because the actual issue wasn't just long duration risk in their treasuries. The actual risk was their collateral, their loans. Their loans are 30-year mortgages. Nobody wants them. That loan is a symbol of the economy. And that loan is no longer valuable because the Fed raised rates into a debt bubble and and ruined the value of that long-term duration paper. So again, it's not about banks. It's not about loans. It's about the faith in the economy. It all trickles down to the economy. And that economy is where Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you, me, and everybody listening, that's where the real world is. Worrying about their portfolios, worrying about their job stability, worrying about their kids' education, worrying about the 10,000 in their checking account that may only buy worth 5,000 next year in terms of purchasing power. Those things are boring, but meaningful. They're not nearly as exciting as what's on Netflix tonight, but they affect our lives. And that's why the bond markets and history and cycles are important. They're not easy, but they're not that hard. And again, it doesn't mean take my opinion or my books or my articles, look at other people's, but what's amazing now is there's a lot of consensus, whether it's Ray Dalio, in the US or me in Switzerland, or whether it's Lacey Hunt or Daniel Martina Booth or Dave Stockman or good, intelligent, courageous journalists, they're all trying to say the same thing. And again, we're not saying we are the truth, we're saying we are honest about what we think. And that's what's missing in the media, that's what's missing in politics, and that's certainly what's missing at the central bank. Honesty, doesn't have to be genius, just be blunt. Just be blunt. For God's sakes, so just give us some some real simple math. And uh, that's what I'm driven by now, because it's, it's 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 so important to our lives right now. We're in a historical turning point right now. That is not an exaggeration. It's already in our lives in real time. So it's not even postulating or speculating. It's actually happening to us right now.
1: Well, you're preaching to the choir. That's actually a big part of the mission of why I created Wealthion in the first place was to sort of have this platform for this kind of honest, uh, Mm -hmm. fact-based dialogue. And of course, it only works if we get smart people like yourself who have the courage to come on and just say, hey, look, this is I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. This is just what it is, right? Yeah. Um, So, so, okay. So all the Mr. and Mrs. Smiths uh, of Main Street that are watching this video right now and have listened to this interview... You know, I'm sure are saying, "Whoa, okay, so that's a really challenging future that Matt has laid out for us here." Um, you know, what should we consider doing about it if we just don't want to become, you know, unwitting collateral damage to what's coming? And of course, yeah. your day job is managing capital, and then mm-hmm. priority number one is preserving it, and then priority number two is trying to prudently grow it in this environment if that's possible. How mm-hmm. are you looking at, you know, the the, the decision-making and portfolio allocation in mm-hmm. this environment.
0: Yeah, and this is where, again, and completely understandable, this is where the cynics will say, well, here comes the honest expert suddenly selling his book, and they're going to question that, and I, I, I need to be aware of that. I I always say, my colleague, Igon von Greyers, and I have been talking about gold for years or precious metals or real assets or commodity cycles and portfolios, we're not trying to sell a book, we're selling conviction. This is my opinion, and we'll talk about. It. I'll answer the question, but I think it's important not to be cynical. It doesn't mean believe every word I say. But this, there's, I could be a Goldman Sachs selling bonds for a fee. I don't want to do that. Most of us could be doing that, but I don't believe in those bonds. I didn't do that when I was managing funds, and I, I came to precious metals and real assets only because in in this particular environment, you've got to own an asset that can't be printed or manufactured at will. That has a kind of an infinite you know, infinite duration, but finite site, you know, finite, uh, supply. And so, no, I'm not going to say just go out and buy gold, you know, go buy, buy gold from us. It's not that simple. Gold is not sexy. It's not a speculation asset. I don't think it's the sexiest thing that every client or every person listening should be buying. I just see it as currency insurance for, uh, currencies that are already dying. And I I'll just say in real simple terms, you know, When I was in high school, I played baseball. And if we had a really good pitcher, or the other team had a really good pitcher, we knew who was going to win the game, who was pitching, who was pitching. We had to go play through the motions, nine innings, six innings, looking at my watch, sitting on third base, waiting for the seventh. But if we had the right (laughs) pitcher, we were going to win. And it's really hard to say in anything in the markets that you're certain of something. In fact, the only thing that worries me is just how certain I am. I don't know a lot of things. I can't time a market. I do know that since 1971, when Nixon took away the chaperone of gold from the currency, that since 1971, every major currency has lost at least 95% of its value when measured against a real asset like physical gold. Again, whether you believe in gold or not, just look at the math. There's all kinds of cycles and trends and gold can go up and down. It's not Bitcoin, doesn't have a standard deviation of 170. I just know this, like I knew I had a good picture or a bad picture, I'm gonna win or I'm gonna lose. I know that gold, is going to ensure my purchasing power better than a yuan, a dollar, a peso, a franc, or a euro. That's all I know. That doesn't mean everyone should put everything they have in gold. My first thing is just it's a mathematical fact that currencies have lost 95% of their value since the, we closed the gold window in 71. That's just objective fact. doesn't talk about volatility and prices. I own gold, like every one of our clients, as, as insurance against banking risk and currency risk. It's just that simple. And I feel high conviction to say that. In terms of other things you can do, again, own assets that can't be printed at will by a corrupt central system. There's a lot of talk about Bitcoin or digital currencies. There's all kinds of risk, all kinds of greatness. The philosophy behind digital currencies, there are many who I I don't have to be a gold fanatic or gold bug, which I think is a cheap term for people who understand gold. But I don't have to be a gold bug and have to hate Bitcoin or other digital currencies. I think... Bitcoin is a major existential threat to the powers that be for a lot of good reasons. And that's why I think there's risk in it. But there's certainly arguments to be made that Bitcoin is another alternative currency to an openly dying fiat world. I think Bitcoin is coming under a lot of pressure from central bank digital currencies, power politics, et cetera. I have no interest or desire to see Bitcoin investors get hurt. I'd love to see them make more money. I'm jealous of them. I wish I had bought it at $10 like everyone else. But I, I worry about the volatility and the long-term uh, use of it, but I'm, I would be thrilled to see Bitcoin succeed. I worry that they are a real threat though, uh, to the powers that be into this trend towards central bank digital currency. And, and therefore
1: have a, has, has a target on its back?
0: Oh, absolutely. It's too smart. It's smarter than the Fed. That's the problem. Bitcoin is too smart. Uh, And uh, there's other problems, but that's the main problem. But that's a high-class problem, but it still has risk for investors. The other thing I would say, getting away from real assets, and again, it's not just gold and silver. There's all, there is, I'll send you a chart after this and you can put it up there. It's probably the most important chart of the decade. It was provided by a good friend of ours, Ronnie Sterfolo. He's an advisor at Matterhorn. He's wrote the In Gold We Trust report. He's one of the smartest
1: guys out there. That's an amazing annual report he puts out.
0: Yeah, it's it's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's modest and humble, but he's absolute genius. And he certainly knows the, the real asset space. I'll send you a graph. You call it the most important graph in the decade. It's just the commodity cycles. Again, buy low, sell high. get out of asset bubbles, get out of fiat currencies, get out of tops. And, and think longer term, not month-to-month, day-to-day, quarter-to-quarter. And when I send you this chart, it's just simple, stupid. You get at the bottom of a, of a commodity super cycle. That's where you want to be if you're an investor as opposed to a trader. If you're a trader, you have your own signals, you have your own volatility, you have your long shorts, you have your options, you have your Kelter bands, your Bollinger bands. If someone's a trader, that's a different conversation. But for investors who don't have time to learn everything it is about being a professional trader, just buy low and sell high. Get out of assets that are overpriced get out of risky assets get into solid boring things that preserve purchasing power and get into at least have some portion of your portfolio into commodity cycle that's going to be maybe painful in the short term but is trending clearly up into the north that's my advice i would also recommend to people that are listening you know talk to their advisors most advisors are consensus thinkers because they can group together in a bull market and then blame extraneous events in a in a bear market on something that they didn't see I'm very cynical about the standard RIAs. I've seen too many. I've seen too many hedge fund managers that I've invested in that were full of whatever. But I think I would really, really start to question the risk parity portfolio, whether that's 60, 40, 70, 30. As we've been warning for years, stocks and bonds are no longer hedged assets, they're correlated assets. So that what worked for our fathers and grandfathers or even us prior to 2008, those type of portfolios are only good in a the tailwind. They're absolutely brutal in a headwind, they correlate to zero. And so your your bond market won't save you. Uh, your bond allocations won't save you. As we saw from junk bond to investment grade last year in 2022, just the horrible performance of the bond market at the same time that you know equity markets were getting crushed. Again, should have been a headline. Worst nominal returns in stocks and bonds since 1871. The volatility in the last couple of weeks in the treasury market, worse since 2000, um, uh, since 9-11, 2000, what, 2001, September 11th, 9-11. That war, and that was a pretty big headline, 9-11. Mm-hmm. The markets were volatile then. Markets were volatile in 2008. Markets were volatile in the in the flash crash of 87. And yet, just last week, none of that stuff made the headlines in the mainstream media. Among pundits and among bond traders and among folks like us, we talk about it. But again, people would rather watch Netflix. But these, what happened in Silicon Valley Bank wasn't 9-11, but what the market says, what the market says is, uh-oh. Uh oh! And again, we saw that in the repo crisis, we saw it in the guilt crisis, we saw it in 2000. There's been so many I told you so's, that when, when, when and if, and I think short of printing trillions more, which is inherently inflationary, when and if we have another uh-oh moment, no one listening, including us, can say we didn't know better. Uh, that's it, you don't have to yeah. agree. But I think the warning signs are there. And one thing I've learned, having made and lost money in my life, and I've done both brilliantly, I've lost more than I made many times, the way to get, the way to be rich is not to lose money. It is not to lose your wealth. Wealth preservation, Egon says it over and over, it's not just a phrase, it's a, it's a way of life. You make money by not losing money. Every time I invest in a hedge fund manager, I didn't invest in the ones who told me all I was gonna make, what the prognosis was, what the projections were. I always listened to the manager who said, these are the risks I'm worried about first. This is where you can lose money. This is where I see risk in my portfolio. They were honest. They were thinking more about risk than reward. Because everyone looks great in a tailwind. Everyone looks smart when they're on the trend. But the real smart money always is thinking risk first, not reward. Always looking like a lawyer. What's going to What's going to get me? Like that famous line in The Big Short. Where are you going to screw me? Are right. You using, you know. And and I think people need to think more defensively and think thirty years out, not three weeks out. And and be cynical. And by the way, again, don't trust everything I'm saying or anyone else that you interview. But put it all together. Think for yourself. Consensus thinking is almost gone today in America. Any kind of consensus view of reality and everything, again, politics, media, entertainment, social justice warriors, cancel culture, woke culture, based, biased, whatever. There's so much mess that it's hard to trust anyone. I get it, but I think try critical thinking. Look at math. Draw your own conclusions. Look at not just graphs. Look at history. Listen to people you agree with and disagree with, including gold, including silver, including hard assets, including cryptos but be critical thinking take a little time and your, your viewers already do that that's why they're here but i think the sad part is the vast majority of americans trust too much or don't look enough at what's going on trust their leaders and that that doesn't make them stupid they're trusting people but sadly they're not critically thinking enough or they're not cynical enough as they could be when it comes to their portfolios and some people don't even have portfolios they just have checkings accounts with with money in there and that's the saddest of all uh, because inflation is eating away at that every day it's an invisible tax always hurts the poor more than the upper class that's history sadly they're always the plankton for wall street's whales you know always the first to get drafted and the first to get hit in a
1: downturn always the plankton for wall street's whales that's such a great line um i I, (laughs) I hate the fact that it's so spot on (laughs) Uh, um Matt, this, this has been wonderful. I, I literally could go on for another couple hours with you and I'm sure people are going to be screaming in the comments, Adam, why didn't you? But I, I, I promised you a certain amount of time and you've already generously gone way over it. Um, in, in beginning to wrap up here, Matt, for folks that have really enjoyed this discussion and perhaps this might be their first real introduction to you, where can they go to follow you and your work? Yeah, it's an easy URL. Uh, Egon
0: von Greyers and I um, are writing articles every week on goldswitzerland.com very simple goldswitzerland.com the name of our enterprise is matterhorn asset management and we we only deal exclusively in uh physical precious metals gold and silver primarily stored in the safest vault in the world it's like a james bond movie you got to see it. it's hidden deep in the, in the swiss alps um most of the gold we buy is direct from the refiners 70 percent of the gold in the world is refined in switzerland and so we get the finest, highest quality gold, but I think far more smart and important than Egon and I is we have this huge staff behind us that brokers and transports and does logistics and holds the, the gold in a truly safe way outside of the banking system. Because for years, Egon was way ahead of this. We never trusted the banking system, whether that was Lehman or Credit Suisse, small banks in Switzerland or small banks in Silicon Valley. Uh, we've always been, I think, prescient and, and distrusting um. The, the major commercial banks and currency risk and political risk. So you have to hold, I think, physical gold outside of your own jurisdiction, but in a safe private vault. And the, the counterparty risk is always the vault, so it has to be a good vault. And what Egon put together decades ago is really, I think, we, we think it's the best way to hold gold outside of the big commercial banks. And I would never hold my gold at a major commercial bank. And that's a whole other story. but yeah So it's just gold Switzerland, and we're called Matterhorn Asset Management.
1: Okay, great. And when we edit this, Matt, I'll put up the URL to Gold Switzerland there so folks oh, know thanks. exactly where to go. We'll put a link in the description to, to below this. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, look, um, Matt, this has been fantastic. Um, I just want to do a couple quick housekeeping notes as we, mm-hmm. we say mm-hmm. goodbye to folks here. You did a really good job. You're going to end up getting some sort of fruit basket or spiff <laughs> from the uh, financial advisors that that Wealthion uh, endorses because... Uh, These guys are sort of exactly the type that you were saying you should look for in an advisor, which is they they, they prioritize risk management first, right? It's all about, okay, first, do no harm by trying not to lose anything. And then what can I potentially prudently do on on top of that? Um, Mm -hmm. Folks, uh, if you've listened to this interview, you know, Matt has just explained why this is such a challenging time uh, for investors, particularly the independent regular retail investor here. And um, so highly recommend, as I always do, um most people, especially if you've got real lives that demand your attention and you can't be watching all these swirling storm clouds that Matt's talking about, that you find a good financial advisor, good professional financial advisor who takes into account all of these macro issues that Matt's been talking about, uh, uses those to create a, a personalized, you know, portfolio strategy for you, but then actually helps you execute it as you know the shoes are dropping along the, the path here. If you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, just schedule a free consultation with one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. Just go to WealthyOn.com, fill out the short form there. Uh, it's totally free, no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a public service they offer. Like Matt, they're just trying to help people make decisions to prudent themselves more, sorry, position themselves more prudently now in advance of what's likely coming, all the things that Matt talked about. Uh, Secondly, just a reminder, if you missed our online conference from a week and a half ago where we had Lacey Hunt and a bunch of those other greats like Daniel DiMartino Booth and Stephanie Pomboy and uh, Michael Pento and Rick Rule and a lot of the names that that, uh, Matt mentioned here earlier, Um, Don't worry if you missed it. Um, You can still buy a replay video of the entire event, all the presentations, all the live Q&A by going to wealthion.com slash conference. And if you've enjoyed having Matt on this program half as much as I had, and Matt, it's been wonderful. I'm very serious about you having an open invitation to come back on this program anytime you want. So folks, if you'd like to see that, please support this program by hitting the like button then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Matt, this has been an absolute joy, even though we talked about some heavy things. Thank you so much for coming on. Adam, it was my pleasure. It really was. Thanks. I talk a lot, but I hope it was helpful. Oh, it was wonderful. I know I can already tell the great feedback we're going to get from this. So thanks so much. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.